Church podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Isaac Thibodeau is preaching a message from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48, called Christian Love, Conquering Evil with Good. We hope you are blessed by the message today. church. So as, uh, as Matt said, we're going to be finishing up Matthew chapter 5. We've been going through the book of Matthew, and we will continue to. I'm sure it will take us a very long time to get to the end of this book, but it will be worth it. Um, today, we're taking both of these sections here from 38 to 42, and then 43 to 48, and we're preaching it as one sermon, because we believe that they're certainly related. Um, The title of the sermon is Christian Love, Conquering Evil with Good. And that's the main point of everything that's going to be said today, is that God conquers evil in this world through the love of his people. Now, many of you who are familiar with Christian history, you know that the first 300 years of the church was marked by intense persecution. And... There are dozens of ways our brothers and sisters were were killed and abused and persecuted, some of which were being thrown to the lions in a coliseum to be torn apart in front of crowds cheering. Others, when Emperor Nero was the emperor towards the end of the first century, he would take Christians and stick them on poles in his garden and light them on fire at night. Just horrible, horrible ways of dying. But one thing, probably the largest factor that contributed to the growth of Christianity was how these Christians responded to this persecution. There are countless stories of Christians who were being beaten or tortured alive in various ways And while they were being tortured, they were singing praises to God and singing blessings over their enemies and praying while they were being tortured that God would forgive their enemies while it was happening. And this caused an insane response in the hearts of the persecutors. They didn't know what to do with it. It it didn't make any sense. The only logical explanation was that Jesus really did rise from the dead He really did forgive their sins. And he really did change these people's hearts. That was the only explanation they could come up with. And Christianity exploded because of that. And at one point, um, we have have letters of emperors and governors talking to each other about the Christians and what to do with them. Because it it had gotten to a point where Christianity was so massive that it was an empire within the empire. And they didn't know what to do with it. And the driving force behind this was the Christian love that was motivated by the gospel and what Christ had done. So that's the heartbeat behind this passage here and how we should be thinking of this. So if you look with me in the text, we'll begin our walkthrough of it. If you look at verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Then look down at verse 43. 
Jesus says again, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So here, Jesus is quoting from places in the Old Testament, as he often does. But I want to make sure we're clear on what he's not doing here. What Jesus is not doing is he's not pitting the Testament against what his teachings are. He's not saying this is, a, this is a brand new teaching you've never heard before. What he's actually doing is he's, he's taking the misunderstandings about these texts that were common in the day, and he's addressing those. So, for example, the first one here, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So this was what's called a law of retribution or a law of revenge. And it was designed, when God gave it, if you look at the context, which is uh, its first, um, the law is first given in Exodus chapter 21, verse 24. You can make note of that if you want. It was designed to take vengeance out of the hands of individuals. So if someone did something wrong to you, you wouldn't just give it right back to them. You would go to the authorities and they would deal with it appropriately. That was the intention of the law, to keep order and peace in the land of Israel. But what is so ironic is the Jews of this day, Second Temple Judaism, had actually taken a law that was meant to prevent personal revenge and use it to justify personal revenge. And we know that's what's going on here because look at verse 39, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. He's talking about personal, a personal attack. Don't, when it comes to someone defaming you, as we'll look at in a minute, that is not something you are to respond in vengeance against. It's rather the job of the governing authorities to deal with those things. That was the point. And look at another verse here um, in, in verse 43. Jesus is quoting from Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 and 18. And actually turn there, because I think it's helpful to read the full context there, if you don't mind. So Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 and 18. This is what the word says. Do not harbor hatred against your brother. Rebuke your neighbor directly, and you will not incur guilt because of him. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So that's the context for this law. And it's pretty, pretty hard to get around that. It says don't take vengeance, don't bear a grudge, don't harbor hatred against your brother. Your fellow Israelite, don't do that. That's what the law says. So you might wonder, how in the world could the Jews of this day get around that? Well, what they did was they took the word neighbor and they defined it as they jolly well pleased. Whatever they wanted neighbor to mean, that's what it meant. And we know that this was the issue of the day because in Luke chapter 10, a very familiar story to many of us, Luke chapter 10 is the story, uh, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, if you want to turn there, I'll, I'll read it briefly. Luke chapter 10. Then an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He asked him. How do you read it? 
He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told them. Do this and you'll live. But, and listen to this, wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So so catch that. Wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus to define neighbor. Because he knows, he knows as well as Jesus does, that the way that he is defining neighbor is not the right way. It's just whatever person is convenient for him to not retaliate against, that's his neighbor. But if he categorized someone as his enemy, he can, he can feel free to break that law because he's, it's, like a, it's like a loophole in his mind. But Jesus, the way Jesus answers is absolutely incredible, and I don't want us to miss it here in Luke chapter 10. Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the road. So this is a Levitical priest. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So he sees this guy lying there, and he's like, ooh, okay. So he steps on the other side to avoid him. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. And then Jesus asked, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Jesus told him, go and do the same. What's so powerful about this story is how confrontational it is to the Jewish mind at the time because the hero of the story was not the Jew. See, the Jews and Samaritans absolutely hated each other. The Samaritans were half-breeds. They were half-Jewish, half-Gentile. So in the Jewish mind, they were even worse than the Gentiles. These guys were apostates. They were, they were living like half-Jews. And that was disgusting to the Jewish mind. So you would think that Jesus would make the hero just a really nice Jewish guy and that the poor victim as a Samaritan. Because then the Jews could boast, like, yeah, we're so good, we'll even help our enemies in that way, Right? But Jesus flips it, flips it around and says, no, the Samaritan was the good guy, and he helped the neighbor, which was the Jew. So it's very offensive to the Jewish mindset at the time, and Jesus is very potently making his point that your neighbor is whoever is in front of you. Whoever comes across your path, that's your neighbor. And it's not this generic, like, you have to love everyone ever in the whole world, because they can do that. You love whoever's in front of you. Whatever opportunity God brings in front of you, that's your neighbor. That's the person you love. That's the point of the story. And this is our temptation too. Like what what the Jews are doing with these verses 
It's our temptation to. We come across a hard teaching in the Bible that goes against what our flesh wants. And our first inclination is to formulate some sort of excuse as to why our situation is different. Or to take the verse completely out of its context and its intended meaning, like they were doing with these verses. That, that's our natural response. Now, certainly, there are verses that are hard to take at first glance. Like, at, at, upon first, first reading, it might be confusing, and there's usually more than one aspect of things that we need to understand, which is why we need the whole Bible to interpret the whole Bible. But nonetheless, our initial instinct should be to embrace the first, our, our first reading of, of the Scriptures, and then do further digging to, to make sure that we're understanding this fully. Because the word, the word of God is clear. And we do not want to make the same error as the Jews did here. So if you turn back to our text in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to get into the meat of the sermon now. Um, we're going to look at what Christian love looks like. And we'll do that in verses 39 to 44. And then lastly, we'll look at why we should love our enemies. We'll look at two reasons from the text. So we'll get through the whole thing. So start, we'll start with the definition of an enemy because that's going to be brought up here. Really in this, this whole section, it, like I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, it's related because you look at someone who is an evildoer. They're, um, they're slapping you. They're trying to sue you to take away what you have. They're forcing you to go a mile. Um, and in verse 43 and 44, talking about an actual enemy. So all of this, whoever's doing these things, these, these are usually your enemies. These are people who don't like you. These are people who want to use you and get things from you. So it's important that we understand what an enemy is. So just starting with English, uh, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines an enemy as one who is antagonistic towards Another, or in other words, someone who dislikes or shows opposition to someone. Those are your enemies. So this could be that person who just really gets under your skin, that person that, that just annoys you. They're, they're a hot mess, and they cause drama in your life every time they come across your path. That, that's, that is an enemy. That's someone who makes your life difficult on purpose. That's an enemy. And I think we all have, either currently have those or can certainly think of people who have, who have been that to us. Now, I understand in our context, it's, it's less likely that we've had someone literally trying to kill us, though maybe you have. Um, certainly for our brothers and sisters in other places, that's a regular thing. But for us, um, we can at the very least think, think of people who just really dislike us either because of our faith or just for any other reason. They are enemies. And we don't have to pretend that they're not. Um, in fact, I think it's important that we call them what they are so that we know how to love them. So let's look in verse 39 and see our first example of what Christian love looks like. Verse 39 says this, But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you, on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. 
So I want to start off first with what this text is not saying. This text is, Jesus, our Lord, is not here teaching against any violence whatsoever when he says, don't resist an evildoer. If someone breaks into my house or your house and they're trying to harm my, my wife, or my daughter, or someone in your family, it would actually be unloving if you did not respond in violence. That would be unloving to your wife, your kids. That would be unloving. The, the loving thing to do for the sake of your family is to act in violence and, and destroy the evildoer in your home who is harm your family. Um, and I, I think that's very clear in, in just general principles in the scripture. We see that all over the place in the Old Testament, and there are some places in the New Testament as well. If you're interested in discussing that further, I'm happy to talk about it more privately. Um, but for the sake of the sermon, we'll just, I wanted to just say that in passing. What Jesus is talking about here is someone who is degrading your dignity. And we know that because look at what the text says. Someone who slaps you on your right cheek turn the other to him also. Now think about it this way. Most, most people are right-handed. And if I'm going to slap someone on their right cheek, I can't do it like this. I'd have to do it like this, giving them the back of my hand, which is just a very universal sign of disrespect, giving someone the back of your hand. I see that in movies all the time. It's a, it's a very disrespectful action. What Jesus is talking about is when someone is degrading you personally, when someone, is, when someone is degrading your dignity, do not respond in retaliation. You respond in humility and in love. I'll give an example of this. Um, part of my sermon preparation, I, I usually listen to a few sermons from some other brothers and pastors that I respect very well. And there's one well-known pastor by the name of Adrian Rogers who who did a sermon on this text. Um, I was very blessed by listening to it, and he gave an example of this young man who was in the military, and he was a Christian. And he had a tradition, every evening he would, on his bedside, he would pray, down on his knees. When he got into the military, he was nervous because he knew a lot of these other guys in the military with him were probably gonna make fun of him. So he wrestled a lot in his mind with it, but eventually he decided, no, I'm gonna do it. So this young man got on his knees at his bedside in the barracks, and he began to pray. And most of the people weren't bothered by it. Um, some of them probably even respected him for doing that. But there was this one guy who thought he was cool. And he took his boots, and he chucked his boots at this young soldier while he was praying. And he just kept on praying, and then and he got in bed, and, and you know that, that was the night. But when the man who had thrown the boots woke up, he found his boots at the end of his bed perfectly polished. So this boy, this young man who was praying, sometime in the middle of the night got up and polished his boots. That is a beautiful example of what it means to respond with Christian love to someone who is defaming you or degrading your dignity. Think of another example, just practically, and I, I think of our brother John Andrade when he does street ministry. If you guys have seen his Facebook videos, this kind of stuff happens to him all the time. You just, just imagine, you know, you're, you're walking down the streets doing street evangelism, or you're protesting at a, at a Planned Parenthood or something of that nature, 
and someone comes up to you and they push you into the pavement and they spit on you and start cursing at you. What, what would our natural response be, right? We, we, might, we might not, you know, as Christians, we're like, I wouldn't get up and punch him, right? So maybe some of us would. But we would, at the very least, we would think it would be reasonable to say, what the heck, dude, cut it out. I thought you were supposed to be tolerant, right? Like, that, that's the fleshly response, right? That's, that's what we'd want to say. And, and certainly, it would satisfy our, our flesh briefly if we did that, right? We'd, we'd be pretty smug after but it would not accomplish the growth of the kingdom. It would not change that person at all. But what would change that person? What would be the Christian response if that happened? Well, it would be to, to get up and pray blessings over that person, to, to tell them you forgive them. What's that? That's probably going to annoy them in the moment, right? And they might even do it again. But the Christian response is to turn the other cheek and bless them. Not in a sarcastic way. You have to die to yourself when you do this, right? But to bless them. Do not curse. Pray for them that are persecuting you. And again, that person's probably going to be seething and angry and think that you're self-righteous for, for doing that or whatever. But the long-term effect, they're, they're not going to be able to forget that. Because that is not the natural response when someone is hurting you. It's a supernatural response. And that's going to stick with them. They're going to realize, wow, there's definitely something different about that person. Maybe this message of Jesus saving people really is true. And, and that's really the whole point of Christian love is it is a witness to the gospel. It goes along, you've probably heard it said, um, um, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. I don't like that phrase because we need to preach the gospel. It's by hearing the word of God that God, um, God works faith into people through the Holy Spirit. The, the word is absolutely essential. But what that is saying, I agree with. What it's getting at, I agree with. It's that we should be preaching the gospel not only with our lips, but with our lives. Our lives should be validating the words we're saying. We should, as the scriptures say, live lives worthy of the gospel. That's what we're called to do. Another, another passage talks about us adorning the gospel with our good works. So we preach the gospel and our good works and our Christian love makes the gospel look as beautiful as it is. It doesn't make it look more beautiful. It helps get our dirt out of the way so people can see how beautiful it really is. That is why it's so important for us to respond in that way. Look now at verse 40, and we'll continue this theme here. This one's an interesting one. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. So again, let's be, let's be clear on what our Lord is not saying here. Our Lord is not saying here to give your possessions to anyone who tries to take them from you. If a robber comes into my house and points, you know, a gun at me or, or just, it's probably, <laughs> that might be a little different. Let's take the gun out of the situation. Let's just say a robber comes in and he's like, hey, where's your wallet? Give me your stuff. Or some, some random person says, hey, can I have your wallet out on the street? Um, I don't have to give to that person. That, that's not what this is talking about. 
what this is, what the implication is, if someone is trying to sue you, it's because you have wronged them in some way. So what Jesus is teaching here is when you have wronged someone, don't just repay them what the law requires. If someone is suing you for your shirt in this context, don't just give them your shirt. You've wronged them. Go above and beyond what the law requires to bring restoration. Give them your coat as well. If someone sues you for $10,000, the principle is if you've actually wronged them, you should go above and beyond that. And we have a perfect example of that in the scriptures. How many of you have heard of the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man? Zacchaeus, raise your hands up high if you've heard of Zacchaeus, the wee little man. Probably heard the song growing up. I know I sure did. I'm not going to sing it for you. But Zacchaeus, the wee little man, the guy who was way too short to, to see Jesus when he was teaching, he climbed up into a sycamore tree, and Jesus comes up and says, hey, I'm meeting, I'm meeting with you today. Hope your house is ready. Well, in conversation with Jesus, Zacchaeus repents. He was a tax collector. Everyone hated the tax collectors because they extorted their own people. The Romans were like, hey, if you're, as long as you collect the right amount of taxes for us, we don't care how much additional you charge and keep in your own pocket. So tax collectors would make serious bank off of their own people. And what does Zacchaeus do when he repents? He's, he's changing his ways because of meeting Christ. Zacchaeus says, if he has stolen from anyone, he will pay them back four times. Four times as much. That is what Jesus is talking about here. If you've wronged someone, go above and beyond to bring restoration. Because that will make an impact. And that will actually bring real restoration. It's not just satisfying the law. So I hope you see the law of love goes far above and beyond, though it is certainly consistent with the law of the letter what is required. Love goes beyond what is required. And we can think of this in, in marriage, right? Sometimes, you know, it's, it's been said that marriage is 50-50. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's 90-10. Sometimes it's 99-1. Right? The, the law of love says, I'm going to go above and beyond what is required of me. And I'm going to Show them the love of Christ. Because Christ certainly went far above and beyond what was required of him. In fact, nothing was required of him. We, we didn't, he didn't owe us anything. Everything he did for us, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit agreed to before all eternity as an act of grace and kindness towards sinful humanity. So if you've wronged someone... Make restorations, but go above and beyond what is required of you in doing so. Look at verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you. And don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So in Roman-occupied territories at the time, um, Roman soldiers, by law, were allowed to have bystanders, just, you know, your average Jewish man or boy working in the field, they're allowed to call out to them and say, carry my pack for one mile. 
By law, they had to do that. And it was said that many of the Jews in this day, knowing that, had a mile marker marked off on each direction from their property on the road. So that when the Roman soldier summoned them to pick up their pack, they didn't have to carry it one inch further than the mile marker. And you you can just picture that. Like imagine a hot summer day, you're working out in the field. This is an agricultural society. Most people were farmers. You're out in the field. You've been working all day. It's in the afternoon. You only got a couple hours left. And here a Roman soldier comes and says, hey, get over here, carry my pack for a mile. So you reluctantly throw down your shovel and you walk over to him. You pick up his pack and don't say a word to him. You just walk until you get to that mile marker and you throw the pack down. Then you walk home. That is what the normal Jewish person would have done because these Romans invaded their territory. They take from them. They overtax them. They abuse their women. They treat them like slaves. There's nothing about the Romans that was appealing to the Jew. They hated them. So imagine the utter silence when Jesus says, if someone compels you to go a mile, and they know what that means, go with them too. Go with them two miles. And I bet some people thought Jesus was being sarcastic. Like, he can't be serious. I'm not going to go two miles. He wouldn't tell us to do that to the Romans. But just imagine, just imagine the situation where there's a Jewish, a young Jewish boy who's heard this sermon from Jesus. And let's just say, you know, it's a couple years later after Jesus' death and resurrection, and he's heard the gospel, he believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's working out in the field, and some Roman soldier says, hey, boy, get over here, carry my pack. So the boy joyfully drops what he's doing and runs over, grabs the pack. He says, where are you from? Soldier's like, from Rome. He's like, I've never been to Rome, what's it like? And he just has a normal conversation with him, and then gets to the mile marker and the soldier's like well you've done your job thanks for carrying my bag he's like well actually a mile up the road there's a well where we can get a nice cold glass of water Uh, I'll I'll walk that way you know up and and show you where it is so the soldier's like okay interesting so they continue to have their conversation and they get to the second mile get their water and the soldier says, now son, I have never met a boy like you. You're a very strange person. (laughs) Why in the world would you do this? And and just think of the witnessing opportunity here, the the opportunity of sharing the gospel, where the boy's like, well, I heard a sermon from Jesus, and he told me to go the second mile, and someone asked me to go one mile. And the soldier's like, well, who's, who's Jesus? And he says, well, he's the Messiah of Israel, the one who takes away the sins of the world. Right? You just, just picture that. So when we go the second mile, when we go above and beyond what is required of us to do, we're now walking in liberty. We're in control now because we're not required to do it. Before we were a slave. Like when you're going just the, the first mile, you're a slave. You're required to do it. It's just what you're required to do. But that second mile is where you have liberty and freedom and you're allowed to show forth love. 
and make a real impact on people's hearts. Because it, it doesn't make sense. Why would you do it? Unless you have been born again from above and changed and you're a new creation, right? It gives such validity to our message when we do this, when we love in this way, going above and beyond what is required. Now, I'll need to do these next two very um, quickly here because I can see I'm running out of time and I still have um, a bit more to get to. But look at verse um, 42 and then verse 44. So in verse 42, we see, give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Our Lord is not teaching here to give to anyone and everyone who asks without any regard to the situation or sound judgment. The implication here is that the person asking you has an actual need, and you have the means to fulfill that need. Just think of this, this passage here in James 2, verse 15. If a, this is what it says. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, be well fed. Sounds nice, right? That's a wonderful little prayer. But you don't give them what the body needs. What good is it? What good were your words? They didn't accomplish anything. When someone has a need and you have the means to fulfill it, even if it makes it uncomfortable and harder for you, Christ is saying, you take that step and you meet that need. Now, why in the world would we do that? Because we have a Father who is in heaven, who's graciously given us all things in Christ. All things belong to him. And certainly, if we walk in obedience to our Father, will he not bless us? Doesn't he? Of course he's going to do that. He's going to bless our obedience. He's a good father. He's pleased when we obey him. And he will provide for our needs. That's what he does. That's what a father does. Father protects and provides. And he is the perfect father. But it is important that we understand this correctly because there is a difference between that and enabling people in their own self-destruction. There are people who are professional beggars. There are people who really don't have needs. They're just lazy and they don't want to work. And giving to them consistently could actually hurt them more, and that would be unloving ultimately. So we do have to use discretion and wisdom, and if you want to know what that looks like, just read Proverbs. Proverbs is a book of wisdom, and it clearly shows how we're to treat those who are poor and have needy, but also treat um, the, those who are slackers. But either way, regardless, we are to love and do what is best for them eternally. That is the point. Look at verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So lastly here, as we're looking in this passage on what Christian love looks like, it looks like praying for those who are persecuting you, as we talked about before. Praying for your enemies. Praying for those who hurt you. And I'll say this last thing on this point before we move on. If you want the root of bitterness to be uprooted from your life. There is not 
a greater thing you can do than to pray for the person you are bitter against. That is such a wonderful antidote to the poison of bitterness. It's, it's been said, I'm sure you've heard it before, that bitterness is like you drinking poison and just waiting for your enemy to die. It's self-destructive. It does not accomplish justice, which is really what we're seeking for. It doesn't work. Christian love is what causes things to change and bring reconciliation and bring justice. That is the way that we are to live. So in our last bit of time together, we're going to look at some reasons Jesus gives us to love our enemies. So we're going to hone in on that a little bit more. Loving our, our enemies. Why in the world would we do that? What is the basis for this? If you look in verse 45, you'll see the first reason. So that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Or another way you could translate it could be so that you may show yourselves to be children of your Father in heaven. So you can be like your father. Sons are supposed to be like their fathers. That's the natural order of sons become like their fathers. Sometimes that's really bad, and sometimes that's really good. And in this case, it's very, very good. Being like our father in heaven. So, so let's explore that. Let's look at at least two aspects of our father's love and, and how we can look at that and emulate his love. So the first is something that many Christians have called common grace. Common grace. And we see this in our passage. So that you may be children of your Father in heaven, for he causes his son, so the son, not S-O-N, S-U-N, if you're not reading, S-U-N, his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Common grace. The good and the evil, the righteous and the unrighteous alike, all experience the blessings of God in creation. They all get to experience food and rain and warmth and the joys of this life. That is common to humanity. And that is a blessing from God regardless of whether someone is just or wicked. It's common grace that extends to all. That's his fatherly care over his creation. But then, and most importantly, we see God's special grace. And we see this type of grace in the Father's passionate love for his own people. So I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 5 and read this here. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. This is what the word says. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Catch that. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Then how much more having been reconciled will we be saved by his life? 
That is the love of God for sinners. While we were still enemies, he sent his son to die for us, to redeem us. And just, I just want you to just, just keep this in mind. This is not natural for us to do. This is not at all natural for us to do. And this is why we need to look on Christ. We can't just hear this and say, okay, I'm going to start loving my enemies. It doesn't work like that. You have to understand the weight of your own sin and how much you have been forgiven and loved in Christ before this will ever be possible for you to forgive and love. I just want you to think about Christ. Think about what he did. Here's this man, perfectly innocent, perfectly innocent. And his own people are demanding that he be executed publicly. So the Romans give in. He's stripped completely naked, completely naked. It's not like the flannel graphs in in Sunday school. Completely naked. Horrifically shameful. And he's whipped so that there's scars everywhere, blood everywhere. And he's, in a, in a mocking way, given a crown of thorns, a scepter, a robe. And people are spitting on him, mocking him. He's forced to carry his own cross to his place of execution. And then he's nailed there with those open wounds on his back, with these rusty, huge spikes in his arms and through his feet. And he's hung there, barely being able to breathe. And what does he use? His few breaths to speak. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Just imagine that. That's that's our Lord. That's what he did in the face of his enemies. And that was us, by the way. We were the ones who crucified him. His own people, he came to his own people and his own people rejected him. That's us. And he stands there, hangs there on the cross, using the little energy he has to speak blessing over his enemies and that the Father would forgive them. And we are called to nothing less. Nothing less. You're probably thinking, if you, if you think of an if you've, if you've been thinking of an enemy, which I hope you have, thinking of someone who just annoys you to no end, someone who annoys you, annoys your family, someone that you think is just this evil person that you don't like at all, that, I'm glad, I'm glad you thought of them, because that's the person God wants you to forgive. That person. That's the person God wants you to love. And you were called to nothing less than what Jesus did. We are crucified with Christ and we live his life through the Holy Spirit. If you are his, this is the way that you are called to. So forgive that person. Embrace them. Forgive them. Love them. Pray for them. And don't pray sarcastically. Don't pray that they would be judged. Pray that they would be forgiven and restored and repent. But don't wait until they repent to forgive them. Build your side of the bridge. And if you have to, try to build their side of the bridge. 
restore. Two. And in verse 46 and 47, we see lastly here in Matthew 5. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the pagans do the same. It's the most natural thing in the world to to be loving to someone who loves you back. There's nothing impressive about that. Hitler even did that to his own family members, I'm sure. Nothing impressive about that. What is impressive is when someone can spit in your face and beat you and mock you and ridicule you online and you can pray for them genuinely and forgive them and show love to them. That is what's going to change the world, guys. That's what's going to change our nation and our nation's perspective on Christians is if we actually love like that. And it's not going to make sense, right? And again, we've already given the plenty of uh, disclaimers on understanding things correctly. We're, we're not teaching pacifism here. There is a time and place to take up the sword in defense of your family and for the sake of righteousness. But when it comes to you personally being degraded, especially for your faith, we are called to nothing less than to love them the way Christ loved his enemies on the cross. So in closing, I'm going to read a passage of scripture and I I want you to just meditate on this as I'm reading it. It's Romans chapter 12, 9 to 21. And I want you to understand this is what we are called to as Christians. And if you feel any resistance in your heart to retort to these words, tell your heart to shut up and listen to the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. Do not lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Get this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. 
do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. This is what we are called to. The way to defeat an enemy as a Christian is to make a friend out of them. That's the way that we are to live. Oh God, this is a heavy passage. It's one that is popular in the minds of so many in our culture, but they don't understand what it means. This is not light and fluffy. This is, this is probably one of the most rugged and hard of all your teachings, that we would love those who hate us. But Lord, we know that we hated you and you sent your son to conquer our sin and to turn us into your own sons, to turn us from being your enemies to being companions, to adopt us into your family. When we weren't looking for you, you came looking for us. There is nothing more incredible than that. And thinking of the suffering of your son on the cross for us and the words of love and humility that he spoke over those who were spitting on him and beating him. Oh, that we would show this love to others, especially those in our midst. Lord, if there is any divisions amongst us, any hatred amongst us, may we repent. May our hearts die on the cross and rise again in Christ. May we be reconciled to them. And may we not dare to take the Lord's Supper today until we have done so. For we are one body and we partake of one bread and one cup to symbolize the unity and the love of your body. May we not partake unworthily. Do this work in our hearts, Lord, especially as the culture is increasingly antagonistic towards us. May we respond in love for the sake of Christ and the gospel. And we pray you would work all of this in us for his name's sake through the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the New City Church podcast. For more content from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. Or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at www.bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next episode.